0: Welcome to Dr.
1: Waffle and Friends, a podcast where we share personal writing and then chat about it together. And now, here's Deanna with the reading.
0: Trivia Pursuit. Let's get the humble bragging out of the way first. I've always had a remarkable memory. I'm not sure if it's photographic or eidetic, which apparently is the officialish scientific term. I've never had the experience of seeing an entire page of text in my mind's eye and then literally reading it off, for example. It's more like all the words are in my head, similar to a regular memory, but much more detailed, and I can simply retrieve them. The range of things I can remember this way is selective. It doesn't work for everything, and I need to concentrate, in other words, care, in order to be able to do it. But my powers of recall under certain circumstances are sideshow-level freaky. I've always been obnoxiously proud of this ability, which is ridiculous when you think about it. Having unusual powers of recall is no different from being tall or colorblind or right-handed. And yet for some reason, most people, myself included, are fascinated by this so-called skill. A number of years ago, when I was still teaching at UBC, I saw an ad on a campus billboard for subjects for a memory experiment, and I jumped at the chance to show off. The experiment was a day-long affair, Subjects would first have an MRI done of their brains, then do a bunch of memory tests, be given lunch, and then come back for more tests. I was interested in getting the MRI as well as the opportunity to showboat. As a semi-professional hypochondriac, I'm always happy to undergo free tests that will reassure me I don't have a life-threatening tumor. The MRI part took a long time, was loud, and induced moderately uncomfortable claustrophobia. By the time it was over, I was relieved to repair to the lab room and start the fun part. The tests were all perfectly suited for my weird-ass skills. Study a picture for 15 seconds, then see it again a few seconds later and indicate which elements have been changed. Hear a list of pairs of words and then repeat back the second word in each pair. Child's play. The tester was a grad student in the psychology department, and as the morning wore on, she clearly became more and more intrigued by my responses. I'm sure the experimenters are not supposed to indicate to the subjects how they're doing, but she was obviously excited and started making little clucking noises under her breath as I blew her tests out of the water. Eventually, there was a question which consisted of hearing a page-long story and then repeating back as much of it as I could. I was supposed to hear it three times and each time say what I remembered. The idea, presumably, was that I would recall more of it each time. After the first time, I repeated back the entire story word for word, and that is what finally broke my grad student tester. Um, okay, she muttered. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do now, since you repeated it perfectly the first time. I guess we'll just do it two more times? So we did. Then she went to fetch the professor in charge of the experiment. I'm just going to bring in my supervisor here. He needs to see this. The two of them observed me for the rest of the morning, openly fascinated looks on their faces. Finally, it was time for lunch, which consisted of a voucher for a sandwich in the cafeteria next door. The only kind the voucher would cover was egg salad. I am not making this up. I vividly remember sitting at a table alone with a plastic tray before me, picking limp lettuce off the rubbery innards of my promised meal, head pounding. It's weirdly energy-intensive to concentrate that hard for that long, and I was exhausted and starving. The sandwich and the half-hour break were not enough replenishment after such a demanding travail. Not that that's any excuse for what happened next. I returned to the testing room at the appointed time, where both the student and her professor were already waiting for me. It would be an exaggeration to say that the supervisor rubbed his hands in anticipation, but they were definitely excited to get going on the second half of the day's tests. Which were all, I immediately learned, about spatial reasoning. Oh, but I thought this was a memory experiment, I asked somewhat querulously. It is, they replied, but the spatial reasoning tests are an experimental control. I glanced quickly around for an easy exit, but the researchers were sitting between me and the door, and the only window clearly didn't open. Besides, my dignity. I sighed and settled deeper into my chair. All the tests for the next couple hours involved arranging colored plastic shapes to form a larger shape represented on a card placed in front of me, within a time limit. The first test consisted of two equilateral triangles that I quickly placed next to each other to form the square indicated on the card, a puzzle that would bore an adolescent octopus. I believe I also solved the second problem, although not as quickly or easily as the first. After I failed the third, fourth, and fifth tests, I began listlessly pushing the plastic shapes around in front of me after each new prompt, waiting for the buzzer to put me out of my misery. I was like one of those poor dogs in the learned helplessness experiments, shocked repeatedly into a state of lethargic despair. The worst part was the palpable confusion, then disappointment, of my researchers. I was not a savant after all, just a middle-aged professor lady with a weird ability to recall highly specific kinds of information in great detail under very narrow circumstances, and spatial relations skills so stunted they are tantamount to a disability. So much for using me to win the war on terror. I relate this story at length, all recalled from memory, mind you, because I'm fascinated by the pride most people, including me, take in their ability to remember random information. I am so eager to let you know how good I am at rote recall that I'm also willing to let you know how bad I am at finding my way from the doctor's office back to the waiting room. Entire industries have sprung up. Game shows, board games, trivia contests capitalizing on people's desire to display the dusty ephemera wedged in their craniums. We are a nation of Victorian curio-collectors-cum-carnival-barkers, and the wares are the contents of our own brains. I suspect that most people are proud of their ability to spout the names of African capitals and periodic table abbreviations because they conflate memory with intelligence. And fair enough— There is definitely some overlap between whatever the hell is measured by intelligence tests and memory skills. But hopefully by now we all know that whatever the hell is measured by intelligence tests is shaped and even determined by one's socioeconomic class, ethnic background, race, mental health, and perhaps even gender, which is to say that the tests that measure whatever the hell is measured by the tests are designed to favor privileged white dudes. So-called intelligence is just a made-up thing that we test in order to keep the system rigged. But that is exactly why, I think, trivia contests and other showy displays of mnemonic ability are so satisfying. They democratize exhibitions of intellectual prowess and disentangle it from education and class status. We suspect, rightly or wrongly, that a good memory indicates a kind of native intelligence that can be abstracted from fancy-pants book learning. We enjoy seeing displays of wit cunning and anamnesis from night janitors and cab drivers who use their smarts to stick it to the man. The plot of Slumdog Millionaire, for example, hinges on just such a device. No one believes that a desperately poor trivia contest winner could have retained so much random knowledge, but he proves that the ability to retrieve the name of the third musketeer transcends class and national boundaries. Television and radio game shows, such as the one depicted in Dog Millionaire, stoke our collective fantasies that our society is fundamentally a meritocracy. Following along with memory savants as they tear through opponents on a multi-week run on Jeopardy is much more satisfying than watching ordinary schlubs compete for living room sets on shows like Wheel of Fortune, Sorry, Not Sorry, that require only a basic knowledge of pop culture and a pulse. It's the same paradox upon which the entire teetering edifice of American society is built. We put up with grotesquely unfair social conditions because we fantasize that we will be one of the special ones that hits the jackpot and makes it big. And even better if our reward is due to an inherent personal quality that finally gets us the recognition we deserve. In order to tolerate life in an inequitable system, you have to believe not only that the system rewards those who are better— but also that you yourself are better in some way. It's just a matter of time before Alex Trebek recognizes your unique talents and makes all your dreams come true. If we're honest with ourselves, those of us who love board games and trivia nights will admit that they afford an opportunity to play out this grand social psychodrama on a miniature stage. If you are of a certain age and from a certain area of the world, your desire to show off your store of indiscriminate facts and thereby prove your unsuspected brilliance was likely sparked by the board game trivial pursuit. At least two generations' worth of family life have been scarred by this supposedly wholesome entertainment, which pits sister against brother, mother against son, and friend against friend in a fierce battle to prove who has retained more NBA point-scoring statistics and film noir protagonist names than their opponents. Of course we all understand, as we flip over the playing board and stalk off in high dudgeon, that it's just a game. But because the questions are testing our memories, losing feels much more personal, like a referendum on our intelligence, worth, or even selfhood. Even being told we're wrong about a random factoid we had always held true can sting. We can all see ourselves in George Costanza when he stubbornly insists that a trivial pursuit card misprint, moops for "moors" disqualifies an overbearing opponent from winning the game. Or maybe we see ourselves in the opponent. While I have no hard proof and have conducted no exhaustive research, I suspect that the rise of trivia contests in American bars and restaurants is due directly to the enormous popularity of Trivial Pursuit and its many spin-offs. Of course, I am freaking obsessed with bar trivia contests and dragoon my loved ones into forming teams with me whenever I get a chance. For years, my spouse and I have been attending a weekly trivia contest with our friends L and D whenever we visit my family in North Carolina. As a foursome, we are formidable competitors. We almost always come in first, second, or third. Because our expertise covers a broad range of topics and, let's face it, our favorite weekly contest heavily favors Gen Xers and Boomers. Tragedy recently struck when our regular quizmasters, a married couple, quit to have a baby. How dare they? And were replaced by a young woman with irritating upspeak who works for a regional chain of trivia contest runners. Suddenly, our collective store of miscellaneous information is no longer a perfect fit for the game, and our brilliance has been revealed with an ignominious poof as a dust heap of useless informational bric-a-brac. But as deeply disturbing as this new state of affairs may be, our greatest psychological challenge as trivia competitors actually came last summer under the Ancien Régime. Our erstwhile Quizmaster's game had one unusual feature— The last round of the night was a Final Jeopardy-style question, where teams had to bet all or part of the points they had painstakingly accrued up to that point. Of course, the poetasters and dilettantes in any trivia crowd like this sort of nonsense, because it can reverse the fortunes of a mediocre team and reward them handsomely for a lucky guess at the last minute. We hated it. One memorable night, the final question—it has burned in my brain forever— was who did Billboard rank the number one female recording artist of all time? We had been well ahead on points all evening, but had bet it all on this question, so had to get it right to win. Back and forth we debated between Cher and Barbra Streisand, and then finally ended up listening to a particularly vehement member of our party, who shall remain nameless, and went with Cher. The answer, of course, was Barbra Streisand. The very next week, we were in the exact same position— Leading Comfortably All Night, bet it all on the final question, and the query was, what famous performer appeared on Broadway only twice in the 1960s and was nominated for a Tony award both times? My immediate thought was, well, Barbra Streisand. I was nearly 100% certain it was her. And yet, what diabolically insane, vicious, inhuman trivia masters would do such a thing? Obviously, the answer can't be Barbara Streisand again, two weeks in a row. Obviously, it must be, I don't know, Julie Andrews? Let us pass over the rest of this torturous narrative in pained silence. The following week, we named our team the Not Barbara Streisands in protest, but it was a weak and insignificant gesture. It turns out that people who need people are indeed the luckiest people in the world because people who need to win trivia contests are setting themselves up for a lifetime of pointless suffering. The special pain of the Streisand fiasco was that it reminded us once again that trivia games are just that, games. There is a component of luck involved. They're not always fair. Sometimes the good guys don't win. They are not a frictionless referendum on who is the smartest or the most prepared, or even who has the best memory. And even if they were, so what? Your memory will not save you. There's a good chance your personhood will even outlast it, and in the end, your beloveds will need to rediscover who you are beyond your stash of stored facts and stories. There is an answer to this last greatest trivia question, who are we if we are not our memories? But you're going to have to bet it all to find out the answer. It's just possible that it's Barbara Streisand. Od, thank you so much for this great story. Ah, I loved all of those pieces that
1: you put together in there.
0: Thanks, Tanya. Yeah, I had a lot of fun writing this one. I had a lot of fun reflecting on my obsession with trivia too, which is like a little disturbing at times. I really do get quite into it, and maybe a little competitive. So,
1: yeah, yeah. you just had to go to the memories, like the corners uh. of your mind.
0: Oh, no. Just <laughs> warn me in advance, how many Barbra Streisand jokes are there going to be in this episode? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think it's a good trivia question, you know, yeah. like at
0: the end of the episode, it's uh, like, how uh-huh. many Barbra Streisand references were there? I love it. I love it. So, yeah, pay careful attention because there will be a quiz at the end. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Indeed. And we're sorry for anyone who gets it wrong because we're just going to have to rain on your parade, I guess.
0: <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I know. Look what what you've done. (laughs) I know. We might have already lost a few
1: people, so come back. (laughs) Well, tell me a little bit about this essay and how it came about.
0: I started writing this one really just the part about the memory test, right? Because I was thinking about memory and thinking about how basically in the last five, 10 years or so, you know, since I've hit middle age, I've definitely started noticing my memory is not as sharp and great as it used to be. It's still really good. Like I still have a great memory and it's completely functional, but I know the difference. So I can tell when there's like a little thing here or there that I would have remembered more easily, or sometimes a word doesn't come to me right away, but I have to think for a second about it. And so noticing those little changes and differences made me start thinking about how deeply I associate my memory with myself, probably as we all do, obviously, but not just like my memories are myself, but more like I'm on the meta level that my ability to remember things so well and in such detail is a part of my identity, a core part of my identity. And of course, it's also like, I am obnoxious about it in the sense that if you have an argument with me, like Scott does frequently, (laughs) because we're (laughs) married, about whose memory of something is right, I will never, ever believe that somebody else's memory could be right and mine wrong. I mean, if I'm confronted with actual hard textual evidence, I will have to give in, but... I sort of then forget about that, like I repress it or whatever. Like, I'm really, really bad about this. Like, I'm just very arrogant about my memory.
1: Anyway. I'm just really glad that we record our conversation so there, you know,
0: (laughs) there won't be any questions. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Anyway. So, yeah. So I started thinking about this recently. You know, it's not like my favorite side of myself, obviously, like noticing that I'm like arrogant and a little bit obdurate about this particular area. And that noticing that it's changing and what is going to happen if my memory doesn't remain as good, et cetera, et cetera. So that was the first part is I just wanted to write an essay about memory and how my kind of history of obsessing about my own memory. And then the trivia part was actually just like a separate thing. But then I was like, well, of course they're connected to each other. I'm just going to make this into one essay, which is about, about memory and how that kind of cultural interest in memory shades over into games and why there's this kind of I think upsurge in trivia bar contests, I mean, they're everywhere now. Like, I don't remember that when I was growing up. It didn't seem like it was a thing at all in the U.S. anyway. Right. There's this
1: weird thing that keeps happening that Matt and I are often trivia contest adjacent, like we're in the (laughs) restaurant or bar next to where it's happening, but we can overhear the whole thing or we're sitting outside and it's going on inside. At least it's increased in my life lately. And Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I can extrapolate to it's increased everywhere if we're just going (laughs) to generalize.
0: So I'm taking this to mean that since you're always adjacent And that your first instinct is not to immediately try to join the trivia contest, which would be my first instinct, (laughs) that you all are not interested in trivia so much.
1: So this is another characteristic that you and I do not share. (laughs) (laughs) I am terrible at recalling isolated pieces of information. Ah, Interesting. However, I was in high school on the Battle of the Brains team. Oh, I believe because I was the only girl who tried out. <laughs> oh, no.
0: oh
1: I, no. I think they were like, you know, it was the 80s. They're like, you know, we have to have some gender equity here. I just bombed on everything. And I, I remember very specifically, there was in one of our competitions, a sewing question, like about the oh, size of a hem or something. Oh, boy. And, <laughs> and so none of the boys knew. So like everyone looked at me and I don't sew. So I had no idea. Yeah, I think yeah. it's like five eighths of an inch or something. And I was like, I don't know, a quarter inch. Anyway, it was wrong. It's the only one I remember so specifically because I thought they put me on this team because I'm a girl and I can't even get the sewing question. Right. So mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, not my forte at all.
0: I, you know, it's so funny that you mentioned this cuz I'm now remembering something. I hadn't repressed it or forgotten it, but I I tend not to think about this so much, which is there was a short period in junior high or high school, I can't even remember. This is ironic that I'm not remembering the details of the story, of course, <laughs> where I was on a quiz bowl team and I remember I was recruited and I was on that team because I was like the literature person and the arts person. So it was, you know, most of those teams are made up of like little math geniuses, right? The questions tend to be very math heavy. And so they needed to round it out with somebody who would be able to answer all of the other questions that were not math and science. And same exact situation, like questions came up and I'm like, oh, uh, <laughs> I don't know who wrote that what particular book. And it was just like, all eyes were on me. Like, this is why you're here kind of thing. So yeah, that was not fun. I think it's such an interesting
1: angle on it that you're thinking about, you know, how it relates to identity and how we think about intelligence in these ways and all this stuff. Because honestly, I do feel like an idiot a lot of the time because Mm. I just I feel like I just don't know anything but i mean clearly i know some things but um.
0: <laughs> clearly that phd <laughs> and the ted talk and the books and all you know just a few things <laughs> right
1: and and i know lyrics to all 80s songs you there know you but and you
0: things- picked up all the taylor swift lyrics later in life so that also shows Indeed. good brain plasticity so there you go We remember what we care about, right? I mean, that's kind of, I, I guess I'm invested in the idea of having a store of random facts, like I like that or something. And so I don't know. But the memory tests that they did that day, they were not about stuff you already knew. Right. Mm -hmm. That's so it's not exactly the same thing. It was about some kind of like more abstract memory capacity because they were showing me things and then asking me to remember them. Right. Like short term recall. More like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if you remember this, but you know how you and Matt and Dan and I used to hang around a lot, obviously, and we would watch reruns of Family Ties. Of course I know that. Okay. We'd right. be like, of course. ties. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. Before we would run off to our
1: Ivy League classes, we would be like <laughs> watching Family Ties in the morning.
0: Exactly. It was so weird, too, because it was the morning. Like, it seems like such a strange time to socialize. But we would, yeah, we would do these reruns of Family Ties. And I think either Matt or Dan, this is going somewhere, by the way, listeners. I promise you this is connected <laughs> Here's here's the point of my mm-hmm. story, is that we developed like a whole kind of lingo around the show, but then also we had lingo about other stuff. And the three of you were all psychology majors. And I remember that we had a running joke. We had a lot of running jokes, but one of the running jokes was about how when you all learned in a psychology class, and I think I took Psych 101 too, so I think I probably learned this as well, that the way to form memories or to you know improve your short-term memory is to chunk Right is Mm -hmm. to put things together into logical sequences or related pairs or whatever to chunk things together. And that's how Mm -hmm. our memories naturally work, but you can improve your memory by doing it more deliberately and on purpose. And so whenever somebody would forget something, one of the other of us would say, Oh, should it (laughs) chunk? You do remember that. So so I think about that all the time. I think like, well, maybe this is just, I'm just good at chunking. I don't know why or how, but it's just like, it's a random little skill. And like I said, in the essay, I think a lot of us think of it as having something to do with smartness or intelligence. And it it really isn't. I mean, there's, you know, whatever intelligence is, there's all different kinds of it. And this is just a very highly specific thing that's valuable, but- So do you love Trivial Pursuit or have you? I do, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I love Trivial Pursuit. Aside, of course, from what I said in the essay about it, basically scarring two whole generations Mm -hmm. (laughs) of teenagers and families. But yeah, it's so funny too, because like games in general, I love games in general, like game Mm -hmm. nights, you know, always trying to get people together for cards and board games and like anything. I love playing games. But I have at least two friends Who really, really hate games and hate them like in this way that is kind of principled, you know, like one of my friends, and I don't want to use her full name just in case I didn't get permission to to tell the story about her, but her initial is D, just like mine. So Mm. my friend D often would talk about how games, especially among friend groups or families in particular... Are almost always about hostility and just <laughs> and aggression. And I was like, they're fun. And she's like, are they? Are they? and ever since she told me this, I have kind of noticed how. I mean, they do obviously. Like people do, their emotions run high, and people get upset, and there's like passionate disagreements, and people's feelings get hurt, and their egos are bruised, et cetera, et cetera. And in a family dynamic, in particular. It does. It can get kind of nasty, right? So, oh yeah, ever, yeah. So I, it's it's hard for me ever since kind of having that conversation with her, thinking about games. Like, what, why do I like them so much? Like, what is it about the game's format or the game scenario that's so compelling? I mean, I wouldn't want to push this too far. I mean, we like human beings have played games probably since we've existed. So I don't think it's like some horrible new thing like The ancient cave
1: drawings <laughs> of tic-tac-toe boards are evidence of this.
0: But yeah, sports, games, whatever. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a pretty right. cross-cultural phenomenon. So, I don't know. Well,
1: games in my family, because I was the youngest and I am from an academic and very competitive family, mm-hmm. it was no fun at all. There was no way that I could win. Oh. No no one ever, like, helped me understand that maybe that's because I was the youngest and not because, like, I wasn't as smart as everybody. But... Um, Um, I, I've, I've come, I've come to realize that, um, a little bit later in life, but I don't know if it's because of this or not, but I prefer cooperative games. And so I actually invent, cooperative games out of competitive games, uh, like Blockus. Blockus is supposed to be a competitive game where you block people from putting down these plastic shaves. And I've created a cooperative version of Blockus. I I also love the game Pandemic. Um, mm. Unfortunately, we've all been playing a little bit too much in real life.
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, and not necessarily very cooperatively
1: <laughs> either. So. I know. Yeah. I'm not sure that we won, but it's a strategy game that's cooperative. So I love strategy games too. So yeah. strategy and cooperative, you know, everybody's working together to save the world from infectious disease. Like what could be more fun than that?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We got a game for Christmas called Sherlock, which is, I I hate to say this, and I'm very sorry if in the high likelihood that the game developer for Sherlock is listening to this podcast, I apologize. We did not like it that much. It's supposed to be a cooperative game, but it was I mean, I'm a Victorian novel specialist. I mean like I'm an academic with a PhD in literature specializing in the Victorian novel. And I was like, damn, this thing is way too text heavy. <laughs> Just, like, I mean, I can't even begin to imagine how anybody, if I, who literally this is what I do with my life, um, mm-hmm. found it to be a little bit of a slog. I can't imagine who's playing this thing, honestly. It's Cooperative games, in theory, are great, but you have to be careful about how you design them, because that competitive element is kind of what makes it a little spicy and fun, and that's like the juice of it sometimes, and so you have to replace that with something, right? Right. Um, There's dangers
1: with anything. So if it's a cooperative game, then... I get a say in everybody's move. And that's like <laughs> the best role for me.
0: The benevolent dictator side comes out yeah. a little bit too yeah. strongly. Exactly. There was a lot of, when we are playing the Sherlock game, there was a lot of people saying, I'm sorry, who's lead detective this turn? <laughs> well, somewhere out there, there's the perfect game that blends cooperation, non-competitiveness, and yet it's still super fun and interesting. We'll find Indeed, it. listeners, do <laughs> let us know what yes. game
1: you think fulfills all of those criteria. We would yeah. be happy to play.
0: Absolutely. I'd love to hear about more interesting, different games.
1: So speaking of quiz shows, though, mm-hmm. you brought up Jeopardy as mm-hmm. well and, and Alex Rebecca. So what's your relationship with Jeopardy?
0: I'm just—I'm an obsessive watcher of Jeopardy. I don't have any other specific. You've never like given your connection
1: to like trivia and stuff. You've
0: never actually tried out. I think maybe like two or three years ago, there was like you know they occasionally do these teacher ones, but this was specifically professors. It has Mm -hmm. since been on uh, on the air, and actually knew two different people who were contestants on it. So I think I did as much as do the little online tryout thing, and I didn't do that well. So yeah. Oh Yeah, I know, I know. It's, again, so the Jeopardy thing, this is very interesting. I love Jeopardy. I'm obsessed with Jeopardy. I have a lot of strong feelings about different Jeopardy champions. But I'm very afraid of the idea. I, I would never actually want to go on Jeopardy. I did this little online thing more as a kind of like, oh, let's see how well I do. Mm-hmm. I, but I would not have actually, I don't think, ever gone on if I had been selected or if I'd done well. Oh, or why is that? I don't think, I'm too afraid of messing up something that would be really humiliating. <laughs> like,
1: oh, right.
0: I don't care if I go on Jeopardy and like lose it all on a question about football. I do care if I go on Jeopardy and lose it all on a question about Charles Dickens. Like, <laughs> I can't, and that's my nightmare. like, that's what would happen to me is that. Right. Like, <laughs> it's why I don't send in
1: things for the Sunday morning puzzle on NPR. Cause I'm like, oh no, I do not want to play the puzzle on the air. Yeah. yeah that seems actually very, very stressful
0: it's much more fun to just shout at the TV screen like, you idiot! (laughs) I I don't want to be the shouty. I want to be the shoutor. Well, it's always been clear
1: to me that that I should never go on Jeopardy, you know, because Mm -hmm. I'm not good with trivia. But I did get to go to a taping of Jeopardy once because, you know, if you'll recall from the last episode, Mm -hmm. uh, you remember Rob was a significant character in that. Mm -hmm. Well, he got to go on Jeopardy, you know, he did want to, yeah, so he tried out and it films in los angeles right so he invited me uh to go this was so exciting like the jeopardy Studios, really fun they've got like oh my god you know the jeopardy stands you can like stand behind them and you can get pictures taken and all of this stuff so what happened though is that rob shows up at the studio and they say well we need to tell you like that one of the contestants is on a winning streak had won you know like 25 games in a row at that point It's like the worst possible thing that can can happen is you go on Jeopardy and you're like, it's just not going to happen. Since you have opinions about, Mm -hmm, you know, the mm -hmm. people. Who is it? James Holzhauer.
0: Oh, interesting. You realize that almost all back episodes of Jeopardy are now available on Pluto, I think it is. We used to watch Jeopardy every night. We'd tape it back in the day when that Mm -hmm. was such a a thing that would happen. On your VCR. Um, Exactly. Or then later with a cable thing with you know DVRing mm-hmm. or whatever. But we don't have cable or anything. We just do streaming services now. Mm-hmm. And Jeopardy is famously not available on any streaming services. Live Jeopardy. But they do have 35 seasons. Like you can go back and see the first wow. episode of <sighs> Jeopardy. The set is freaky. I mean, it's really like, it's so 80s. It's so hilarious. And Alex Trebek's mustache is glorious. Oh. <laughs> So we've been watching these old seasons so we're see- we're watching these runs of people winning and I feel like we just watched the whole James Holder yeah. so it's possible that we watched the one with Rob on it and didn't realize it was Rob. Oh so my now gosh. I have to go back. I'll find the date. I'm inferring, I'm reading between the lines here that he did not defeat. He, he's he, not the person. He, he's not the
1: person. But I have to say, since you're talking about seeing old game shows, mm-hmm. um, we have to take a little detour here. Okay. So have you seen the movie Maestro? Not yet. Matt and I watched it the other night and it's, Fantastic. Oh, like, good. absolutely. Oh, great. Yeah, it's so good. And, you know, it's all about Leonard Bernstein. Yeah. And so then after the movie, you know, we like wanted to know more about Leonard Bernstein's life. And then, you know, I was like, well, my great uncle knew Leonard Bernstein. My uncle Bill was a composer, William Schumann, oh. and he was also president of Lincoln Center, president of Juilliard, all these things. But then I was looking in his Wikipedia because I was like, you know, just curious about where they might have interacted. And it said, that Uncle Bill was on What's My Line.
0: No way. Yes. Oh, my gosh. And so
1: the Wikipedia quoted extensively from it. And, you know, Matt was like, this has got to be out there on the Internet somewhere if they're quoting so extensively. So we found it and we watched it and it was so great. I mean, that's awesome. This was like, I don't know, I guess the 1950s or 60s that that it was on. It was like a very long time ago. It's all in black and white. And, and, you know, all of these very elegantly dressed people who are asking the questions and. For anyone who doesn't know What's My Line, someone comes on, they have a profession, and the people have to guess what their profession is by asking yes or no questions. And Uncle Bill was very charming and funny, and and they had to blindfold them because apparently he was so recognizable that they would have known. But anyway, someone guessed, are you Leonard Bernstein? Uh. And he said, no, but he's my friend. And I was like, oh, yeah, it was so much fun. And now we just want to watch all the other episodes of What's My Line oh my god. Yeah, you oh, would love this.
0: What's My light is great. I remember, obviously, it's before my time. Like, we weren't born mm-hmm. yet. But for mm-hmm. some reason, I feel like well, I grew up watching it. Black and white. There were three celebrities who were the guessers. And then, like, a couple of them were permanent. And then there was, like, a rotating guest spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I loved that show when I was a kid. It, m- yeah, it must have been on in reruns. Such a good show.
1: And I honestly think that this makes a really good, like, car game and stuff. It's like mm-hmm. someone think of a profession and everyone else asks questions. So, yeah. anyway. So back to Jeopardy. So right. I got to go to Jeopardy, which was so much fun and, you know, a little bit demoralizing for Rob, but he got to be on Jeopardy. He had had a—I'll let him tell this story sometime—he had a long history with trying out for Jeopardy, not being on earlier in his life. So he finally got to be on Jeopardy. So this was so great. And the thing that you don't know when you're watching it on TV is that during the breaks, during the commercial breaks— Alex Trebek takes questions from the audience. Oh. I know. And so I was like, this is great. By the way, I've had a crush on Alex Trebek for decades. I know. I think the fact that he can pronounce everything correctly is just so great, you know. Yeah. he speaks so, French. <laughs> he does. Yeah. So I decided to ask him a question about that. And I said, you know, I didn't tell him I had a crush on him. Uh, I didn't be inappropriate, you know, with Alex <laughs> right. Trebek. But I said, right. um, you know, I'm always so impressed at how you can pronounce everything correctly. So, you know, is that something that you practice ahead of time or does that just come naturally to you? And he so charmingly responded to the question by mispronouncing words. It was oh, just perfect.
0: Yeah, it could not have been better. That's mm-hmm. everything I pictured about Alex Trebek and more. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. But here's the other thing. The other thing that I learned is that he doesn't pronounce everything correctly. That when he doesn't pronounce it correctly, they re-record because we saw uh, them doing that. So I was like, okay, you yeah, got the answer mm-hmm. to your question, but I got because you I, saw did. It I did actually. I did indeed. Oh well. But then I have to say the very sad thing. Is that this was the very day that Alex Trebek publicly announced that he had cancer.
0: Oh, my God.
1: I know. So he
0: announced it in the studio to the people there or? He, He told
1: the contestants Mm-hmm. Um, but he didn't tell the rest of us. So we didn't know till we were leaving the studio with Rob and Rob told us. Aww. And then like an hour later, it was like in the news. Rob, Rob's brother, I think, texted him like, what did you do to Alex?
0: Oh, no. It's really I sad. I actually uh, I have to confess it partly because we don't have access to any service that will show us Jeopardy mm-hmm. in real time. I haven't watched any of the new seasons without him. I've seen a couple of tournament-y things that Ken Jennings has hosted. So I've seen Ken Jennings host, and he's good. I think he's quite good. But um, I haven't watched any of the, the ones since he died. So sad. It's very sad. The the three that really kind of got to me in the last seven, eight years, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Anthony mm-hmm. Bourdain, Prince, obviously,
1: <laughs> oh, and yes. then
0: Alex Drake. And I feel like this is way off on a tangent, but I feel like those other three, Anthony Bourdain. Prince Philip Seymour Hoffman, it was understandable why they were so devastating. It was like, you know, horrible. Oh, and also Matthew Perry. That was also all four, like really upsetting, awful circumstances, Mm -hmm. addiction involved. You know, it didn't have to be this way. But then Alex Trebek, that one was just devastating simply because of who he was and the fact that we lost Mm -hmm. him. It was kind of more, you know, just just the fact of him being gone. So what else do you want to tell me about the essay? (laughs) The part that I feel... I always feel this way about all my essays is that like I write a bunch of stuff that I think is kind of funny and fun and whatever. And then at the end, I'm like, and here's the meaning with a capital M. Mm -hmm. And so it gets kind of, you know, backloaded, I guess. It feels like it's always a little bit rushed, maybe at the end. I've talked before about the fact that the Dr. Waffle essays were meant to be like funny and light, and I didn't want to spend a ton of time on them. I don't revise them. So, you know, there's a lot that I feel like I could often go back and do differently. Mm -hmm. But for this one, I kind of feel like the sort of meaning part or the part that's like meant to be the sort of deep or significant or thought-provoking message or whatever toward the end is that idea of identity. I mean, this is why Alzheimer's and other diseases and conditions that affect memory are so devastating for people themselves as they're feeling their memory slip away, but also for people around them watching it happen as well. Mm -hmm. It seems so central and integral to our identity who we think of ourselves as human beings our store of memories. And who are we if we're not that? If we can't remember people, we can't remember our lives, then we don't have a kind of coherent shape for it. And I know that like Buddhism has an answer to this, obviously, and lots of other religious traditions as well. But I think like in Western culture anyway, that mm-hmm. notion of memory being almost coterminous with identity is really strong. And it's very hard to Kind of fight against that. You have to really kind of think in a completely different way in order to step outside of that paradigm, you know. And most people don't bother unless they have to, right? Unless they are losing their memories themselves, or they have people who are losing their memories. I mean, I went through this with my mom, obviously mm-hmm. with um, dementia, and having to figure out what our relationship was and what it was yeah. all about and what did it mean now that she wasn't really my mom in the same way. So yeah, it's. I mean, I know it's a thing a lot of people have to go through as well.
1: Yeah, and I went through that with my mom yep. as yep. well. So mm-hmm. I yeah, I know what you're talking about and Yeah. And I wonder, you know, cuz you're talking about memory for facts and trivia and you're also talking about like memories of our own lives right. and I don't know sort of what the relationship is between those things. Yeah. Like I am terrible at remembering isolated pieces of information also not really great (laughs) remembering things about my life. I'm wondering if that's the way my mind goes, if that will feel as much of a loss to me as it Mm. might to you, because Mm -hmm. I I don't know that I have as much of an identity built on that.
0: Interesting. Mm. Right. There's two different notions of identity here, right? One is like, Who do you think of yourself as? What do you like about yourself? What are you proud of? What do you kind of build your kind of self-esteem around or whatever? And so in that sense, I have a great memory is part of that aspect or version of identity for me. Like I think of myself as a person with a good memory. But then of course, there's the much broader concept of identity, which is simply just self, selfhood or ego or ego in the sense of like who your core self is. And I think memory for that sense of identity is important to almost everyone. Whereas Mm -hmm. the other piece, which is like, I identify as someone with a great memory, it kind of makes it overdetermined for me or other people who have the same identification. Mm -hmm. I'm not just going to maybe like lose random things that I can't remember about my life anymore, but I'm also going to lose my sense of who I am. That's what feels threatening lately. Mm -hmm. Like the last, like I said, five or 10 years where I'm noticing I'm not, I'm not quite as sharp as like perfect as I used to be. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit harder.
1: I think that the equivalent for me is when I stop thinking of clever song lyrics, like Mm. that's when I'll be like, oh, no,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I am not the Tanya who I thought I was. Yeah. Speaking of which, so as I think you probably know, our cats are very into writing song lyrics. So there's a couple of principles that they like to follow. One is any kind of song with the word love in it. They change the word love to lunch. You know, I wanna know what lunch is. <laughs> and of course it's very poignant because the cats don't get lunch because we, you know, we give we feed them in the morning and mm-hmm. the evening. So that's that the whole, and dinner I- only. I want to know what lunch is. I wish you would feed me. <laughs> like these are, you know, they make up these little songs. But they also are very fond of changing around lyrics to Christmas carols. One of their most famous ones is the little dishes that we've served them their dinner in. The dry food is in these little shallow, wide silver metal bowls, right? Mm. So they started singing silver bowls. (laughs) And silver bowls, silver bowls, it's dinner time for the kitties. I mean, it's really, it's a great song. It goes on and on. It has many many more. They're so clever. They're very clever. But. Yesterday, Scott announced to me that the cats have a new thing for Christmas carols, which is they replace the word Christmas with breakfast, which is actually really, really great. So try it out yourself. <laughs> I mean, it's a little late now because we're, we're taping this on December 28th. But um, mm-hmm. next year, when the Christmas carols come around again, next July or whatever it is, try to substitute Christmas with breakfast and you'll find it makes a great song. Well, I think early in the morning, we'll all go breakfast caroling. <laughs> Very nice. Um, The other quick thing I have to say, Mm -hmm. and maybe we'll end with this, is the other day... So actually, we taped me reading this story about a week ago, and then Mm -hmm. we had some sound problems, so we had to come back and do the interview later. So in the interim, Mm -hmm. uh, I played trivia with my friends here, same group that I was talking about in the essay. And my sister was along as well. And we were winning. And it was packed too. It had, they had like three times as many teams as they normally do because it was right before Christmas and there was like tons of people from out of town, very touristy here. But we were doing great. And we were at the very end of the game, we were tied for first. So they had a tiebreaker question and they said, send up the person from your team, you know, to the front who is the best person at U.S. geography. Ooh. And so we all kind of looked at each other in horror, right? <laughs> and one of our team members who was great at U.S. history was like, oh, if it was history, you know, know. But I like geography. And I'm like, well, I'm actually, I feel like I'm kind of good at geography. So I was like, all right, I'll go. Nobody else is volunteering. I'm a ham, as you know. So I was like, I'll do it. <laughs> so I went up there and the question was, this is embarrassing. I'm about to embarrass myself. So there's two of us up there. Whoever could answer it first would win. What year did Alaska join the union? Oh. This is not a geography question. This is <laughs> a freaking This is history question. I'm sorry. And so the two of us, the other guy and I both like wrote down our answers mm-hmm. and they were wrong. And he just, he kept just saying like, right, keep writing, keep guessing until one of you gets right. We each did like eight rounds of guesses. We could not get this year right. Finally, he just guessed at random and he got it. So we came in second, mm-hmm. horrible, embarrassing, humiliating, blah, blah, blah. This is why I'm not good at Jeopardy, right? <laughs> <laughs> I would never, I would embarrass myself over something really basic like, like that. So Okay, I have no idea what year Alaska became. <laughs> okay,
1: good. That's do you remember what year that was now that you could oh, share Oh of course. With us? Now oh, I'll never I'll never please forget please it. Please share. 19,
0: 1959. 1959, Fantastic. I will take that awesome. to my grave. My first guess I knew it was post-war. My first guess was 1947, and then I was guessing in the later 40s, and he mm-hmm. was moving into the 50s, and finally he got up to 1959. But the funny part is when we went back to the table. You know, nobody could kind of tell what was going on because there were so many people, Mm -hmm. it was really crowded and loud or whatever. So we got back to the table and of course my teammates asked what happened and I told them and they're like, Oh my god. And David, the friend who was the expert in US history, was like, (laughs) nineteen (laughs) fifty-nine (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so that was... That's very that, funny. I, I blame the trivia master on that one. If he'd said yeah. it was U.S. history, we would have sent up David and we would have won.
1: I'm going to say, I appreciate that you shared how we had our sound problems and that we recorded the story a week ago, <laughs> which explains to everyone why I didn't remember that you love Trivial Pursuit because apparently you mentioned that in the essay. Oh, yeah. I heard the essay a week ago. Marty <laughs> yeah. right. said I can't remember anything. Right. So that was a long time for me to remember. So, um, but at funny. least people don't think that I forgot it within five minutes. That's true. That would be more of a cause for concern. (laughs) You know what? I remember something else from a week ago now that I wanted to share because the day that we recorded the story, that morning, I was working on my book and Mm -hmm. I had read an article about a study. So it's a study where they had people pair up and someone had to come up with questions that they were confident that they knew the answer to. Mm -hmm. And they would quiz the other person. And if the other person got it wrong, then they would provide the correct answers, you know, when when the contestant was incorrect. But it was pretty often that the contestant was incorrect. Because like, let's say I come up with 10 questions that I'm really confident I know the answer to. And I ask you, you're a lot less likely to know the answers sure. to those questions, right? right? And oh, they also had observers. So they had okay. observers and they had the contestants. And they asked them, who do you think was more knowledgeable, like the questioner or the contestant? Mm-hmm. And They both thought that the questioner was more knowledgeable, even though it's a total setup, you know, that of course the questioner is going to know the answers. But even the contestants felt like they weren't as knowledgeable for not Uh. knowing them. So this was a study, Lee Ross, um, Mm -hmm. 2018, I'm going to have to cite. But the conclusion was that we tend to ignore situational factors um, Mm -hmm. in terms of other people's behavior and attribute their behavior to their traits and abilities. We don't do the same things to ourselves. For ourselves, we always take situational factors into account. But for other people, we're like, well, they're just, you know, clumsy or (laughs) rude or dumb or whatever it is. So anyway, I just thought that that was, you know, as you're thinking about your experience um, with the psychological testing, we're still doing it in lots of different ways.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, totally. Like, I just have a good memory, but if it was the situation was s- different, I might be like, oh, that person had this the questions fed to them. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, and mm-hmm. I think we I, I at least I personally, I'm only speaking for myself, do that both for good and ill in the sense of like, mm-hmm. I, you know, harder on myself you know, I'll say like, oh, that's just because I am lazy or I am inconsiderate or, you know, whatever I am, mm-hmm. I'm selfish or like, I'll get down on myself about stuff that if it was a friend, I'd say like, oh, she's just tired or like, she's got a lot at her plate or whatever. So yeah, I think we can sometimes use to beat ourselves up as well and be harder on ourselves as well as cut ourselves breaks too, I would imagine. I don't know whether mm-hmm. the study talked about the double-edged sword aspect of that or not. It
1: didn't do that. Most of the stuff that I've been looking at is really talking about how we're much- much more likely to give ourselves a break in a way than than we are someone
0: else. Okay. Well, there you go. I'm just neurotic. (laughs) See, see what I did there? (laughs) Indeed. That was
1: fantastic. All right.
0: I feel like we need to round this off with a Barbara Streisand joke or something.
1: (laughs) Oh, yes. I know. Well, I was thinking, you know, you were were talking about us a long time ago and how we would, you know, say, well, should have chunked. And I'm like, well, that's just the way we were.
0: Good one. Perfect. (laughs) Well, thanks so
1: much, Dee, for sharing this story and chatting about it. I loved it, and we'll talk next time.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Tanya. (laughs) Take care. Bye, everybody.
1: Listeners, if you liked what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and share so more folks can find us. You can follow us on social media at Dr. Waffle Pod. That's Dr. Waffle Pod. Or email us at drwafflepod at gmail.com. Check out the show notes for websites and other info. Thanks for listening.